Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Well, I didn't go to the Ohio State University. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Uh, But I did marry into the Ohio State University, which means I get to root for the Bucks. Right? It's a good thing. And not only do I get to root for them, but because of my marriage to Josie, who is an alum, their long story is now, in a way, my story. I can claim OSU victories of the past. I do not have to resign myself to a middle-of-the-table kind of Mac school, which is where I went. <laughs> where I can, I can claim Ohio State victories in the past. I can say to my brother-in-law, who went to the University of Miami, Remember when we beat you for the national championship? And I can say that with a straight face. Why? Because I married in to the Ohio State University. But my marriage connected me to far more than just good football. Every summer I get to go north to a storied cottage that is in her family. And I say storied because this cottage, there are stories in this, what I would consider a sacred place. There are stories on the wall, there are stories on the shelves, there are stories everywhere in this place. And it extends back far in time. And I, somehow, mysteriously, these nourishing stories become somehow part of my story as well. The Bible has an image for this. It's an agricultural image. It's the art of grafting. Do you know what grafting is? I recently watched a video on how to graft a broken branch... Onto an apple tree. You take the branch, you whittle its edge to a wedge, and then you cut a gap in the living branch of the tree. And then you place the dead branch into the living branch and you tape it up, and in time, the wild dead branch starts to bear fruit. Why? Because it is accepting and receiving the nourishing sap from the living tree. That's grafting. And this is actually how the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans describes the person who trusts in Jesus, Israel's Messiah, who trusts in Jesus, that also does not have Abraham in their family tree. They are, according to the Apostle, grafted in. And so the wild branch receives the nourishing sap, that's Paul's image, the nourishing sap of God's tree. And so if your trust is in Jesus this morning, these Old Testament stories that we are reading together are now your story. You've been grafted in. And here's the point I'm trying to make. Paul says that this is a nourishing thing. A good thing. But I think if we're honest, there are times when we read the Old Testament and we wonder if it is as nourishing as the Apostle Paul says it is. And I think the book of Joshua, for many folks, is one of those times. Joshua tells the story of God's wilderness people driving out Canaanites from the promised land of Canaan. 
And for many of us, it conjures up ugly images like colonialism and other things, which conjures up unwanted feelings of embarrassment, maybe, or doubt, if we let it. And we ask, how can God say out of the same mouth, thou shalt not murder, and yet also say out of the same mouth, devote to destruction everything that breathes? How is that possible? Is Paul crazy? Is this nourishing sap? Because sometimes it feels like poisonous sap. How could this chapter in God's drama possibly bear good fruit in our life as Jesus followers? And so it would be tempting, I think, as we wrestle with this, to simply just say, forget Joshua. That's what many of us do. Okay, but like Jacob, who we read about a few weeks ago, I want to wrestle with these chapters in God's story that I think are difficult. Trusting that there is blessing on the other side. Yes, trusting even that the Apostle Paul is right. It is nourishing. It is not poison. And if I'm honest, here's the thing that holds me. Jesus is my authority. If Jesus rose from the dead, which I believe Jesus rose from the dead, then that means I don't get a vote in his kingdom. He's either king or he isn't. And if he rose from the dead, he's king. And if Jesus is not embarrassed about Joshua, then I need to take a closer look. After all, my Lord and Savior, Jesus is named after the man, Yeshua, Jesus. I trust Jesus so much that I want to challenge any problems I might have with Joshua. I want to doubt my doubts in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's doubt our doubts together. This is actually the approach of a contemporary pastor and author by the name of Joshua Ryan Butler. And he has a book called Skeletons in God's Closet. And it's his goal in writing not to apologize or to push away the difficult chapters in God's story. Things like judgment and hell and the Canaanite conquest, for instance. But to show how they surprisingly nourish. How could something like the Canaanite conquest be nourishing sap to the branches? How might this book enlarge our soul and make us more like Jesus? That's my goal. A few caveats before we get started. Number one, the Bible itself says, demands to have mercy on those who doubt. This means the true story of the world acknowledges that there are parts of the same story that may create doubt. And I want hope to be a merciful place for you, wherever you are this morning. I also want to say this. It's okay to be offended by God. We can give ourselves permission right now to be offended by God. There's a rock and roll band, Gable Price and Friends, and they have a song called Heretic, and in it he sings a really risky prayer. Oh, offend my mind so I can know you more and break my heart so it looks more like yours. That is a risky prayer. Anne Lamott famously said that if we are never offended in our minds by God's ways, then it's a sign we're probably worshiping a God of our own making. Amen? 
Isn't that true? I think it's a sign of health when we're wrestling. It's a sign of health when we're wrestling. Are you wrestling? It's a sign of health. I'm glad you're wrestling. You're alive. And you're not coasting. And that's okay. And I want to say this last of all. If there's anything helpful I say uh, this morning regarding the Canaanite conquest. I need to give credit to Butler's work. Um, he helped me in his book tie together a lot of these loose threads in, in my own thinking. And I hope that by showcasing what he has taught me that you are helped as well this morning. And this is a conversation. We're not going to pretend to tie up every loose thread this morning. But let's get started anyway. The book of Joshua. It is nourishment. How so? Well, it tells us who God is. It tells us who God is. It gives us three snapshots of God. And each of these snapshots answer three, I believe, of our deepest hungers as humans. What are those hungers? We hunger for salvation. We hunger for security. And we hunger for shalom. More on that word later. These three deep hungers, I believe, are met in this ancient book of Joshua because it spotlights a God who gives us these three hungers. Let's just start with the first one, salvation. See, Joshua spotlights a God who saves. A major theme in Joshua is the utter holiness of God. He is not safe. He is not small. He is not a figment of our imagination because we would never make this up. He is holy. He is so holy. That word means set apart. He is so set apart in two things which are often separated. He is set apart in his greatness and he is set apart in his goodness. Leviticus expert Jay Sklar defines holiness this way. Purity and power. Moral purity and sheer power. And when you combine these things which are often separated... Goodness and greatness. You have God's holiness, his set apartness. And these two things, which are so separate in our thinking and in people, these two things, when they are combined in the perfect holiness of God, it is on full display in his salvation. God is a holy God who saves. See, if God were perfectly good, but not great, not powerful, then he couldn't save. Despite all of his best intentions. And yet, flip, if God were perfectly good and yet not great, then he wouldn't save. But when you combine the two, we have a God who saves. And we see God's holiness on full display in Joshua. As God's people cross the Jordan as a sort of replay in a way of of them leaving Egypt, they must keep a clear distance from the ark of God's presence And of course, the conquest itself could be understood as a keeping distance from the holiness of God. The reason God must drive out the Canaanites, to quote theologian Kevin Van Hooser, is because of holiness, not hostility. In fact, Van Hooser wonders if the reason we have trouble with Joshua is because we have an anemic sense of holiness. And an underestimation of the scandal of idolatry. 
And that statement is worth pondering for a long time. See, the thing is, God is holy. He's utterly holy. But only a holy God can save. We see this salvation in two ways in Joshua. We see that his salvation is expansive and we see that his salvation is expensive. And we'll just take a quick look at each of these. So first of all, his salvation is expansive. We see this in chapter two of Joshua, where we meet our first Canaanite, a woman named Rahab. Now, we would think she's outside of the circle of God's salvation, but she sees the goodness and the greatness of God. His holiness and expresses faith and not just words, though she has those, but in costly action by protecting these two vulnerable Israelite spies. God's salvation is expansive. We also see this in chapter nine, a group from Gibeon trick Israel into a peace treaty. Why? They too saw the true God, Yahweh, and like the Syrophoenician woman in the Gospels, wrestles their way into the kingdom. These two examples, along with the multitude that we read about who left with the Israelites out of Egypt. You know, it says in the Exodus narrative that God rescued Israel, his people, in a multitude with them. And all these things sort of hint what the New Testament shouts that God's people are not meant to be local, but global. From every tribe and nation and people, his salvation is expansive. But we also see in Joshua that his salvation is expensive. We already saw the need for sacrifice in Leviticus. Remember that? In Joshua, we see as well the high cost of disobedience. When we're talking about an utterly holy God that we are drawing near to, we have to understand that with that comes a high cost of disobedience. So, for instance, in chapter 7, Israel overconfidently and independently rushes into battle without any word from God to do so. Also, a man named Achan disobeyed God's clear command. And kept things from Jericho for himself. And this leads to defeat. This leads to death. This leads to, honestly, at the end of it all, a pile of stones over the body of Achan to remind Israel and everyone reading the high cost of disobedience, of covenant disobedience. Speaking of covenant disobedience, in chapter 8 of Joshua, all of the Israelites divided up into two Camps, two groups. One half stood by Mount Gerizim and the other half stood by Mount Ebal. And the ark of God's presence stood in the middle. And then Joshua reads all of the blessings for obedience of the covenant and all the curses for disobedience that we learned about in Deuteronomy last week. And all of this, I think, should remind us that God's holiness is indiscriminate. The cost of disobedience is something all humanity must pay. Israel included. God's own people. In fact, Israel will be driven out of this same land generations later. Because of their covenant disloyalty by the same God. Which means, what does that mean? It means we need a greater Joshua. 
One who doesn't just share in his name, but who embodies its meaning. Joshua, Yeshua means God is salvation. One who takes on the covenant curses in our place on the cross. One who is exiled so that we would be brought near. One who willingly points the sword of holy war to himself. One whose breath is extinguished on the cross so that we would have a spirit of life. And not just me, but his multi-ethnic bride. Salvation is expansive, but friends, it is expensive. Thankfully, Jesus paid the price. I think this is one of our deepest hungers, salvation. And Joshua is nourishing because it spotlights a holy God who alone can save. Everything else is a cheap alternative. God alone in His holiness can save. Rahab saw this. The Gibeonites saw this. And Joshua saw this. But friends, only Jesus provides this. Have you received salvation with empty hands? Have you laid hold of Yeshua? The true and perfect Joshua. Joshua spotlights a God who saves. Joshua also spotlights a God who secures. Who secures. In an age of cheap promises to rest secure under the God whose word is as good as done is rest. It's nourishment. This point is a quick point. Then we're going to get to the third one real quick. But it's basically this. Joshua, much of it. Much of Joshua. If you've read Joshua, you know this. It's a map. It's basically a verbal map. It's not a picture map. It's like a map with words. (laughs) And in this map, it describes in detail all the land that God promised long ago to Abraham. And I love how Joshua puts it in his final words to Israel. He says, soon I will die, going the way of everything on earth. Deep in your hearts, you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed. See, God is a God who keeps his word. And Joshua is nourishment to our soul because Joshua is proof that God keeps his word. Despite all obstacles. The brilliant philosopher Esther Meek, she compares faith in God to faith in a car mechanic. Now, who's had car trouble recently? Yeah, you know what's up. Entrusting your car to a mechanic is difficult. And how good is it when you find a trustworthy mechanic? It's an amazing feeling. You entrust your car to this person as a huge risk. You don't know if their word is true or not. They could totally take advantage of you if they wanted to. But over time, with this mechanic, they start to build a trust, don't they? And I'm willing to bet that some of you are absolutely loyal to your car mechanic. Anyone? You're absolutely loyal to your car mechanic. Why? Because they've proven themselves over and over and over and over and over again. What else do you do? You tell people to go to this mechanic. Why? Because their word is true. And they know what they're doing. And Esther Meek says that is is trust with God. We entrust not our car, but our life to God. And part of the reason that we are rehearsing the story of God. Is because we need reminded, especially when God's voice seems silent in our life, that God's track record is good. Joshua shows us he does 
exactly what he says he's going to do. There is zero disconnect between God's word and God's action. Think of the creation narrative. God speaks and what happens? It happens. Think of Jesus in the gospel narratives. Jesus speaks and what happens? It happens. There is no disconnect between God's word and God's actions. And we see this in Joshua as well. What God says he's going to do, he is going to do. Always. In stop. Always. God's word is true. And that is securing to us. Despite every odd, despite every setback, he fulfills his promise. And I think this means today for all of us, we can take God for his word. And I would just ask you, what promise from God do you need to hear and to believe this morning? Maybe it's the promise that he will make all things right in the end. Maybe it's the promise that he will wipe away every tear. Maybe it's the promise that that he's worth it. That his pathways are pathways to life. Whatever he promises, we know for certain his word is good as done. Which takes us to our final point this morning. Joshua spotlights a God who restores Shalom. Joshua is nourishing because it spotlights a God who is tenaciously committed to Shalom. In the world that he lovingly made. What is shalom? Well, shalom is a Hebrew word for peace. And it's more than just the absence of fighting. It's the presence of healthy relationship. It's not a negative term so much as a positive term. And this healthy relationship is in every single dimension. Divine, social, psychological, even ecological. And so when you hear the word shalom, you should think in your mind, Garden of Eden. Where there was relational flourishing, where where God had relational flourishing with his people, and where we had relational flourishing with him, and where we had relationship, we had good relationship with each other, we had good relationship with the land, we had good relationship in every way, even with ourselves. That is shalom, that's the way God made the world. And our job was, if you were with us in Genesis, Our job was to extend the borders of this garden to encompass the entire world as the waters cover the sea. That was our job, is to expand the border of Eden, to bring the shalom everywhere we go. But we wrecked the garden, didn't we? With what? With our rebellion, with our sort of self-focused sin, with injustice later, and murder later, and all kinds of... The spreading of borders was not of his garden, but the spreading of borders of of an empire, an evil empire, an empire, an unjust empire, exploiting others, not loving others, exploiting them for our own, rejecting God with with our own idols and with our own efforts. And so this garden expansion project becomes an empire expansion project for our own glory. If you get in my way, I'm mowing you over. And so what we have in Joshua is God reclaiming and restoring his garden. Think of it that way. He's committed to shalom. And Joshua teaches us, I think, that shalom has two necessary ingredients. And the first is an active concern for the vulnerable. 
Joshua Ryan Butler, I mentioned him before. I'm going to borrow a lot from him in this point. But he helped me see that the story of Joshua is actually one in which God is arising on behalf of the vulnerable. He writes, Joshua confronts our popular caricature of holy war. It is not the strong using God to justify their conquest of the weak. It is God arising on behalf of the weak when the tyranny of the strong has raged for far too long. Butler paints the caricature that I think a lot of us have. Canaan is a peaceful paradise. Israel is powerful and strong. They're lusting after land and they mow down the innocent in the name of God. They use God conveniently for what they want to do. And then they say, look at us. We're the heroes. And aren't you glad? That we took over. But as Butler points out, Joshua, in a close reading of Joshua, actually turns this caricature upside down on every single point. The first being that Israel is actually not strong. Their neck has been under the boot of Egypt for how many years? 400 years. And the last 40 years, they have been living in a desert. Without a home. Basically walking from one oppressive empire, Egypt, to another oppressive empire, Babylon, Canaan. With nothing in their hands but trauma and God's intervention. That's what they're carrying. They're not strong. And Butler compares this to ants marching under elephants' feet. Israel is not the bully in the schoolyard. They're the bullied ones. Israel is not armed. They don't have horses and chariots. As Butler points out, God actually gives Israel absurd military strategies. Like play a horn and march around a military stronghold. This is meant to show the world and even Israel that they're not fighting. This isn't their conquest at all. This is God. This is all God. It ain't Israel. And number three, Israel isn't heroic in any sense. In fact, Bella writes, Israel in contrast constantly depicts herself as weak, fearful, idolatrous, unbelieving, dishonest, and disobedient. If you were with us during the numbers sermon, we talked about the difference between A resume of weakness and a resume of strength. And in every possible way, as we read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we see Israel putting forth a resume of weakness. They're not boasting in themselves at all. And let's not forget that Israel suffers the same exact fate as Canaan in the exile. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that with the prophets. I think this is important to keep in mind when we think about Joshua. We tend to jump to two analogies, I think, when we read of Joshua. Colonization and World War II. But a closer read of Joshua reveals that these analogies are indeed appropriate, but not in the way we think they are. Other writes, If European colonization is the analogy, then the Holy War looks a lot more like a beleaguered motley crew of Native American, African, Asian survivors shocked to find God rising up against the Western imperial powers marshaled against them. Forward two is the analogy that in the Old Testament, Holy War looks a lot more like God rising up in the concentration camps for those getting annihilated and taken down 
the Third Reich. For God to recover shalom, he must hear and act on the cries of the oppressed and act on behalf of Israel. Remember, when we hear the word remember in the Old Testament, it's not just a sort of, oh, I remembered my grocery list. But when God says, I remember, it's always a commitment to act on behalf of those whom he hears. And so when he hears the cries of the oppressed, he acts on their behalf. And he does not ignore the profound injustice and even bloodshed in this world. He is a God who hears and who acts. Just think of Jesus and his character. Jesus is the truest portrait of God. He is God in flesh. And who does Jesus have an ear for and an eye for? The oppressed, the vulnerable. Shalom requires God's active concern, but it also involves his active patience. His active patience. In Genesis 15, verses 12 through 15, God tells Abraham that he cannot have the promised land yet. Why? And I'm quoting, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And Butler drives this point. It makes me feel the weight of what God is saying here. God is basically saying to Abraham, 400 years in advance, your family and my people are going to suffer in the oppressive empire of Egypt for four generations because I'm being patient with the oppressive empire of Babylon next door. I will not step in until it gets really, 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 really bad. And all you have to do is call to mind whatever injustice gets your blood boiling. It's happening right now. And what are you saying in your prayers? You're saying, how long? Why aren't you acting? Why aren't you doing something about this now? Now, God. And we will get a sliver of a taste, maybe, of what Israel was was saying when they recalled this promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis. What on earth are you doing, God? We are enslaved. Like, this is terrible. And you promised us land, but, but that empire, they're terrible too. And they're doing awful, atrocious things. What is going on? Are you, are you seeing this? Are you going to act? And I think this demonstrates the agonizing patience that God demonstrates towards profound injustice. It's an agonizing, agonizing patience for us. When we see what's going on in the world, we want God to make things right now. But Joshua teaches us that God is patient. He will step in. And that's the New Testament hope, by the way, in the book of Revelation. That God will indeed make things right. But until then, we do cry out with all God's people, how long? How long? See, I think Joshua answers the deep hunger we all have for shalom and for justice. Injustice is a sore wound that will not heal unless God intervenes. Joshua tells us that the God we serve will intervene. He does not stand back or stand by. And this does a couple things for us, just as a way of closing here. I think this Joshua, if this is a part of our script, and if it is indeed nourishing, which I believe it is, 
It can make us two things. It can make us peaceful, number one. Many people have read Joshua and they've come to the conclusion that the appropriate response to this book, if it has its work in us, is to make us peaceful, not violent. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul says the reason we can love our enemy and bless our enemy without retaliation is why? Because God is a God of vengeance and justice. And Paul firmly sets this, this Roman church is under the boot of the Roman Empire. These marginalized believers in Jesus who are going to get mowed in just a few decades. And just think of the underground church across the world who are getting mowed by their faith in Jesus. Like, we have it so good, guys. And so listen, what's going on is, is, that, is that Paul is saying you can actually trust in a God who will make things right. And that will in turn enable you to bless your enemies. Not just tolerate them, but to actually bless them. Why? Because you know that God is a God of vengeance. You know that God is a God who will right things in the end. And he does best. And so we can take that burden of retaliation and we can lay it on the floor of Jesus. And that makes us peaceful. In fact, it, it was surprising to learn that pacifists, those who in principle believe that Jesus prohibits all forms of violence, use Joshua as a proof text. And they point out that it's not the Israelites doing battle. It's God. It's God's prerogative, not ours. So Joshua, I think, surprisingly makes us peaceful. It tells us that God will make things right. He will drive out everything that spoils Eden. And he will ensure that the whole earth is an international house of prayer. Just like his son Jesus, when he overturned the tables. It can make us peaceful. I also think it can make Joshua can make us hopeful. This is ultimately what I want this to happen. Is that Jesus, that we would have a picture of Jesus, the true and perfect Joshua, who will come to make things right, who will come to restore shalom. Our hope isn't in a small sliver of land. Our hope is in new creation. New creation, where, where, the, where the temple comes down out of heaven, where the heaven and earth kiss, and where the entire globe, all of God's creation, is indeed Eden again. And all that vandalizes shalom, all of its injustice, all that's wrong with this world, whatever it is called to mind, is indeed vanquished and taken care of. And Joshua, Joshua gives us hope that that is indeed the trajectory that we are on. And yes, Jesus will bring judgment but in the cross, we, what do we see? We see that the judge himself becomes judged. Which means today, Jesus offers mercy and forgiveness to all of us here this morning. All the ways that we spoil shalom. All the ways that we worship idols. All the ways that we wink at God's holiness. All the ways, all of our personal injustices. And the ways that we contribute to injustice. The greater Joshua, the judge of all, was judged for all of that. So that you can have hope. So that you can have hope. See, Joshua is our story, but this doesn't need to be something we're ashamed of. We can be nourished by it because it points to the greater Joshua who is not safe. No, he's not safe, but he is good and he invites you into his life today. 
And part of what it means to be the church right now is to indeed point to Jesus and to say, listen, he came on a donkey. He came offering peace. And he died for you. Embrace him and embrace his ways. He's restoring shalom. Be a part of that. Be a part of that. And so, Lord, we come now into your presence and we come asking that you indeed would be elevated in our hearts so that we would bend our knee to you. But willingly, because you are a good God in your greatness. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your name means salvation. And thank you that you are restoring Shalom. We now rest in your tenacious commitment towards Shalom. We rest in your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.